Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to an FS Club webinar. This is part of our Communities Chess series, and this is where we have a conversation uh, with somebody whom we think is very, very interesting in our group, but who uh, is really not necessarily trying to preach at us. And so today we're going to feature Edmund Fitton Brown. Now, Edmund, uh, as you'll have gathered when you registered, has got an ex a very distinguished diplomatic career. Uh, many of you will also know that I'm hardly considered to be a diplomat, so I'll try and be quiet during most of this and uh, let Edmund do the talking. But he's done an amazing amount of service around the world, uh, both for the uh, British uh, Foreign Office, but now uh, doing a tremendous amount with the UN. And I think there's some interesting angles for us, particularly as people in technology, uh, finance and economics, of Edmund's experiences looking at terrorism around the world, looking at the groups uh, like uh, Al-Qaeda and Daesh, and saying to us, you know, where do we fit in uh, and what should we expect? So I'm looking forward to, to a fun chat. Uh, I would point out it is meant to be a discussion with the community. So please uh, do use the GoToWebinar facility for asking questions, which I will feed in to a conversation with Edmund later on. Edmund does have a few uh, prepared remarks at the beginning. I'm going to open, though, if I could, with thanks. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. It is an amazingly tolerant group of people who let us range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance, and really follow our intellectual hearts. If you can do such a thing, I guess our, our hearts follow our heads. And we get to explore all sorts of areas. And today I'm looking forward to, because I do think we have a lot to learn. Uh, many of the people you can see on this chart are very involved in financing, uh, and certainly not financing terrorism and also providing the technology that helps us with things like anti-money laundering and uh, prevention of uh, fi financing funds. So enough of that. Uh, the job for me is to get out of your way so that you can talk to Edmund. Now, Edmund, um, we're, we're going to follow a kind of a format here. We're just, I think the audience would like to know a little bit about you personally, or maybe a lot about you personally. I've enjoyed our conversations. And then we'll just sort of step through, if we could, kind of what's top of your entree, what sort of things, particularly in this rapidly changing world, do you find surprising, funny, uh, and then maybe some of the social, technical, economic, political themes that you're tumbling across in what is truly a unique position. Uh, so would you mind by just opening just maybe a little bit about yourself? Thank you. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Michael, very much. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, honoured and delighted to be able to take part in this Communities Chest uh, online event, uh, and, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Uh, I won't label my CV because I think that's uh, people have seen that. Um, but uh, but the point is that uh, my background, as you say, uh, is, um, is 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 in um, external relations, um, a number of posts around the world, um, but a career that was mainly focused on the Middle East, um, and uh, I am what the Foreign Office uh, calls an Arabist, um, you know, part of that uh, part of that uh, fairly well-known group within the uh, within the Foreign Office. Um, and and my experience was, uh, I guess, the key themes running through that experience have been, has been international security and international relations. And now my present job, uh, after I uh, after I left, uh, stopped working for uh, HMG, um, I uh, I joined the UN as coordinator of sanctions on Al Qaeda and the Taliban, and also as the chief assessor of the threat posed by these groups. I'm effectively, uh, you could say I'm the UN counterpart of the head of the UK's JTAC, the Joint Terrorism Analysis Center. Um, and this all builds on my previous experience of debriefing on terrorist issues and of diplomatic negotiation on cooperating to uh, manage those issues. Uh, and indeed, of course, of communicating them to a wider audience, explaining why we do what we do. Um, there's a lot more I could say here about the totality of the UN response to terrorism but uh, and how that is structured. But really, um, the time is limited. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to sort of get bogged down in that. But I'll happily answer any questions on it. Um, I usually speak to official audiences on uh, specific uh, counterterrorism topics, um, and uh, I'm, I was really intrigued when I saw the format that you have, uh, the people who've used uh, for these meetings, uh, and I and I, I I wanted to adhere to it, um, and found that as I was sort of uh, working my remarks through it, that it was really, really challenging and interesting, and I, I hope it's come out that way because um, because it's, it's nice to speak in a less uh, 
in a less sort of uh, formulaic way than I'm, I'm used to. Um, the top of the in-tray uh, point, um, I think I have to say on that, inevitably, it's keeping abreast of the threat, uh, always. Uh, understanding its evolution, how it's likely to impact on us all. Uh, and so under this heading, I think this would be the moment for me to just give a quick skip through uh, the team's uh, perspective on the global threat currently posed by ISIL and Al-Qaeda, uh, and, and including in that the impact of COVID-19 on all of it. Um, so, um, just to rehash some key developments of the past 18 months, uh, we remember the fall of the uh, so-called caliphate in early 2019, uh, the killing of Baghdadi later in the year, the appointment of Amr al-Mawla as his successor, um, everyone will recall the horrific uh, attacks in Sri Lanka uh, in the spring last year, um, that was uh, sort of a an inspired, uh, ISIL-inspired attack with strategic impact, but it was also uh, in contrast with a trend of reduced international attacks associated with ISIL from a, from a high watermark in 2015, 2016, and then uh, really uh, dramatically reduced in the years since then. Um, this year began with a continuation of many of the trends from last year, attempts by ISIL to consolidate as a covert network in Iraq and Syria and to increase the tempo of local attacks in the, in the core region. Um, the international community uh, was uh, continuing efforts to address the legacy of displaced persons. Sorry. Apologies, that was a phone. Um, that was a displaced person, I think. <laughs> that was a displaced person, yes. Uh, displaced persons, detainees and dependents in northern, northeastern Syria. Uh, and, and we were working on mitigating the both the security risk that those people represent, but also the humanitarian uh, issues around that. Um, unfortunately, the political, legal and practical difficulties of this issue are now complicated by COVID-19, of course. The monetary team has been assessing other impacts of the pandemic on terrorists and the threat that they pose. ISIL's own response has been uh, broadly in three areas. First of all, let's attack our enemies while they're distracted. Secondly, let's celebrate this divine punishment of them. And then thirdly, uh, let's not catch the virus. And so there's uh, restrictions on travel, gatherings and things of that sort. And then there are a few other things that are worth considering, you know, in terms of, you know, what does what does terrorism and counterterrorism look like in the pandemic era? Um, could there be a bottling up and release effect? Um, there continue to be few attacks in non-conflict zones. ISIL has not restored its own capacity to direct attacks internationally. And of course, inspired attacks at the moment don't work very well. It's a time when public targets are scarce. And terrorist travel has been disrupted. And indeed, we've seen one or two cases of terrorists trying to travel during the pandemic and actually getting arrested. Um, but uh, this may have added urgency to their own planning They've always been planning to revive the external operations capability, and it may well be that this has given them the sort of both the incentive and perhaps the sort of uh, breathing space in which to do some of this. Um, their propaganda and online activity have had a captive audience to work on. Um, and of course, there's another point of uh, motivation. They've been marginalized from the news. Uh, by COVID-19, there hasn't been much talk of terrorism uh, over the last uh, five months or so. Um, and uh, also their new leader, Al-Mola, has been very hesitant to communicate. Um, and this may provide an imperative to act to retain relevance. Um, so I think we should just be alert to the possibility that there might be attacks as COVID-19 restrictions are eased. The pandemic has further accentuated the difference uh, between the threat trajectory in non-conflict zones where it has reduced and conflict zones where it's increased and is likely to increase further. Um, in conflict zones, it's very difficult to impose meaningful travel restrictions, of course, and border controls may be non-existent in some, uh, in some regions. Um, and of course, then there's this issue of economic distress, the sense of part political marginalization as well. Um, these may be exacerbated by the pandemic's impact on people's welfare and on the functioning of states. 
observers often talk about the risk of ISIL or Al-Qaeda using some kind of bioweapon. And we, we mustn't dismiss this as a, as a threat. Um, we know they're aware of the option of using COVID-19 to infect uh, um, enemies, but there isn't any evidence um, that they have developed uh, practical plans of this kind, whereas there are other strains of terrorists who've taken it a little bit further. Um, member states um, of the United Nations continue to believe uh, that ISIL will broadly hold its previous course under the new leader. Um, but of course, he'll have to adapt to evolving challenges, including the pandemic. Uh, delegation of authority from the core leadership to the remote provinces was already underway. And that was following a long established trend that existed in Al-Qaeda. And it's likely to continue, I think, in both terrorist groups, with regional affiliates increasingly setting their own objectives and taking on local characteristics and embedding themselves in local conflicts. Uh, ISIL and Al-Qaeda are active in too many locations around the world for me to mention in this brief presentation, but I'll just highlight Afghanistan as another key conflict zone for, for both groups. The dynamics of the ongoing peace process will impact unpredictably on both of them. ISIL Khorasan has suffered severe setbacks over the past eight months in its former strongholds in the eastern part of the country, but it remains a threat. It hopes to regroup and consolidate and rally to its flag all elements in Afghanistan that are opposed to the peace process. Sunday's attack on Jalalabad prison and the release of inmates is a stark reminder of the continuing relevance of the group. The US-Taliban agreement envisages the Taliban continuing to fight ISIL-K and also increasingly acting to suppress Al-Qaeda and the large numbers of foreign terrorist fighters present in Afghanistan. And of course, should the Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is believed to be in Afghanistan, should he succumb to age and poor health, um, a leadership succession would be very challenging for Al-Qaeda in the context of an Afghan peace process. The other region I'll just briefly touch on is West Africa and the, the Sahel area, um, where local affiliates of both ISIL and Al-Qaeda continue to enjoy operational successes. They both seem to be mounting deliberate challenges to stability in the local jurisdictions and undermining state authority. They exploit local issues, and they even had a period of local ISIL Al-Qaeda deconfliction, which was very interesting because it was so much at odds with the uh, poor relations that exist between the two groups uh, at the leadership level and in many regions. Um, that understanding broke down in West Africa this year uh, and uh, the affi their affiliates in the Sahel are now fighting each other. Not clear how that will impact on the threat. So. That's the top of my entry, the threat. We have to keep this constantly updated, uh, looking at what's happening and uh, listening to what our member state interlocutors are telling us. Um, your uh, your entry is actually very transparent. You've kindly, folks, uh, Edmund has shared uh, one of their latest reports uh, with you on the website and also in the resource area. Uh, and it does make a fascinating read because I, I think what's interesting, Edmund, is people are always curious, what does somebody like you do? And you lay it out uh, really quite transparently. So thank you. Well, I, I think it's part of what, part of what we do is that we are in receipt of privileged information from member states, but they know that we will use our expertise to uh, declassify it, to sanitize it, and to use it. And you know, sometimes they'll tell us things and say you mustn't use this in any form. But often they're telling us things which they wouldn't themselves be willing to say publicly, but which we're able then to to uh, put into our, reframe into our reports. And in a way, it's a way that member states, I suppose, are moving the terms of the debate on counter-terrorism, uh, partly through our, uh, through, through, through our agency. Just, just a quick question on your map here. Um, somebody's asking, uh, we've got some questions actually about North Korea coming up in a minute. Uh, but I noticed North Korea isn't on here. Is that because it's not in your remit or is that just well, yeah, not that, in not not in our remit. I mean, no okay. ISIL or Al Qaeda connection there. Of course, I have um, I have good friends and colleagues who are working on North, the North Korea issue. Um, <laughs> that's just you know internal yeah, UN colleague so. business. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Great. Thank you. So, uh, most surprising or thought provoking? Yeah, I, I I think the most provocative thing I want to say is that I'm not a propagandist for the counter terrorist industry. I, I believe in a sort of ruthless objectivity and keeping a sense of proportion on these issues. Terrorism is a serious matter, yes, it requires our attention um, and serious countermeasures, but it's nowhere near the biggest threat that we face. Um, 
consider the cost of COVID-19, for example, in lives, economic damage, disruption to our way of life, our peace of mind, our future. Consider environmental issues, plastic waste, climate change, elimination of endangered species, destruction of forests. Consider the cost of warfare, crime, the strategic threat posed by aggressive state actors with cyber capabilities or CBRN capabilities or even just conventional military capabilities. There was a period after 9-11 when counterterrorism was over-resourced beyond any realistic relative assessment of other threats. Something about terrorism grabs attention and it attracts resource. We mustn't allow that to get out of proportion. On the other hand, my more doom-laden rider to all of this is that the underlying issues which gave rise to Al-Qaeda and ISIL have not been solved and they are getting worse in general. Conflict, ungoverned space, the clash of civilizations rhetoric that's now occurring between tech theories and white supremacists, um, marginalization of youth. And these are strategic challenges which, if they're left to fester, will mean that terrorism will probably come back worse at some point in the future. Moving to funniest, um, which was the next slide. Um, there are, funnily enough, there are times when terrorists are funny, I think. Um, their qualms about catching COVID-19 certainly amused me. Many in the international community were talking up the bio threat um, that infected extremists might run amok infecting us all. Um, and, you know, as I say, they have had thoughts about this, but they've also said, let's not travel to Europe because that sounds awfully risky. Um, and, and, you know, for a group which had, which has an affiliate, the IS Central African province, co-located with an Ebola outbreak near to the Ugandan border in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and failed to draw the obvious conclusions about what that offered in terms of a human-born bio-suicide weapon. It seems unlikely that they will do much with the much less weaponizable COVID-19 and it's really white supremacists who look far more likely, have already in fact have taken some action of that kind and are likely probably to, to do so again. Um, there's also a certain comedy value in some of the Al-Qaeda and ISIL propaganda. The ISIL fanboy posts are especially silly, uh, presumably cooked up in many cases in their bedrooms in their parents' house. You know, they celebrate hurricanes as soldiers of Allah, COVID-19 as well. Uh, these are taunts really on the level of a football hooligan celebrating an opposition player's extramarital affair or a manager's heart attack. Um, and with true adolescent photoshopping skills, they had us worried about Leo Messi being decapitated in a jumpsuit in a Russian soccer stadium during the 2018 World Cup. And of course, nothing happened. Uh, ISIL themselves were conscious of this as a failure, which risked undermining the overall credibility of the group and its propaganda. So that, 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 there's a sort of brief humorous interlude, and then we then we move on to the themes in this uh, interesting step format, social, technical, economic, and political. Uh, and I've done this very, very briefly, just really just bullets of thoughts. Uh, on the social side, we do need to address the xenophobia that's been a growing feature in the West. I'm not a bleeding heart liberal, and I recognize the legitimacy of concerns on issues like immigration. But fear of the other is not a policy and it's self-defeating. Exclusion, except in the narrowest sense, when it's possible to keep an identified threat outside our borders, will usually only breed alienation and radicalization. Moving to technical, in a CT context, that will often refer to cyber concerns about threats where the internet is a key factor, online propaganda, recruitment, instruction, organization, fundraising or even the medium in which an attack is carried out, so hacking or the targeting of infrastructure via computer access. On the latter front, ISIL and Al-Qaeda have once again shown little ambition uh, or capability so far. State actors and non-state actors, but also non-terrorist non actors, non-state non-terrorist actors uh, have been in the vanguard, but the threat remain, re requires monitoring. The exploitation of the internet by ISIL and Al-Qaeda is more in the abuse of online platforms and encryption for propaganda and communications. Uh, and this is the subject of much international action with the UN a key player in convening fora for member states and tech companies. Progress has been made, for example, in the lead time to take down extremist content. And Europol had a notable success in cleansing the Telegram platform in late 2019. But this is, a, I think, probably a permanent uh, self-refreshing task and much still to be done on it. 
Next to my mind is the really big COVID-19 related CT risk, and that is that the economic damage of the pandemic will plunge many people into acute poverty, add to grievances and feelings of marginalization, and derail government efforts to provide welfare as well as security. The political point is about international unity. There's a high degree of agreement on counterterrorism and even more so on ISIL and Al-Qaeda. Their tactics and ideology are so repulsive that the international, um, international adversaries can usually agree, at least in theory, to work against them. The Security Council can all get together on this point, creating good personal relationships, a habit of cooperation, which can then become valuable in facilitating engagement on more contentious issues. In other words, it's worth emphasizing counterterrorism work, not just for its inherent value, but also because it's a center of excellence in UN functioning and in wider international understanding. My biggest ask, the next slide, um, so this would be really um, on behalf of colleagues, my colleagues in member states who are responsible for tackling terrorism head on on a day-to-day -day basis. Give them a break. Um, they're the goalkeepers. Sorry, I keep coming back to soccer analogies. This is uh, this is one of my uh, one of my own sessions, as you, can, <laughs> as you can probably tell. You know, a Leicester City fan as well. Um, um, so yeah, uh, they are the, the, the counterterrorism professionals are the goalkeepers, and they're only ever remembered for the ones they let in. They may stop 95 or 99 percent of plots, but for good security reasons, most of us will never even hear of these while some public commentators will want us to forget the successes and the reality of the legal and resource constraints under which they operate and crucify them for anything that does go wrong. I've often said that if terrorists were smarter than they are, if they understood the disruption caused by certain types of incident, they could tailor their UK strategy at least to, keep, to keeping the security services permanently tied up with COBRA meetings and inquiries. If you used more known terrorists for low-tech, unpreventable attacks like the Lee Rigby killing, and if you do more kidnaps, and these are things which just turn the turn the government inside out into a sort of frenzy of introspection and, uh, and, and, and crisis management. So in both cases, the impact on CT resources can be huge and do more damage to the public interest than the attacks themselves. This present period of low threat in non-conflict zones is actually what CT success looks like we mustn't assume that it will be sustained. We must develop stronger stomachs for living with an ambient threat, an, ambi sorry, an, ambi an ambient level of threat and violence. People speak absurdly of ending terrorism, but that is no more realistic than ending crime or ending pollution. We need to get back to the resilience we had to show when the IRA was mounting attacks in, in the mainland. The US needs to look at the number of lives lost to attack fury terrorism and put that in the context of the number of lives lost, for example, in wider extremist violence and firearms in incidents overall. Post 9-11, it's a tiny proportion and its significance in policy formation should be given the appropriate weighting. I suppose what I'm saying is keep things in proportion and be suspicious of media or political uh, voices that urge you not to do so. And that's the end of my prepared presentation. Well, that is absolutely wonderful and perfectly to time with uh, lots of time for questions and a lot of questions on the board. Um, just to get things going, uh, there's just a question here from Martin White. and He's basically wondering, do you feel that your role makes you a terrorist target out of proportion to a normal individual? Is there that type of personal targeting? There is an element of that, yeah. I mean, the UN um, treats me as one of the people that they're concerned about my personal safety. And that's partly because of the role that I'm performing for the UN, but it is also partly a legacy from my profile with the British government before I joined the UN. And the UN uh, security people factor that in as well. It means, for example, that when I make trips to Afghanistan, um, my colleagues will go to uh, some, of the, uh, some of the provinces of Afghanistan, but I'm only allowed to make uh, short, uh, uh, brief visits to, cut to Kabul uh, with close protection and then leave again. Mm. Uh, Bob McDowell has a question, I think, related to the bit about Lyle and Massey uh, in Instagram. Uh, what counter propaganda is deployed against terrorists? You know, for example, do you do you put out, uh, not you personally, but does the team in any way look at putting out ridiculous messages about terrorism uh, of a sort of humorous nature? 
Uh, I suppose I mean I suppose I do a, a very very um, you know marginal uh, contribution on that and through my own social. But you know I mean I'm, I'm only I'm only communicating to a few thousand people, so it, I would I wouldn't make a big deal of that. And the team is really more focused on on the threat side. Um, the the whole sort of um, issue of um, countering and preventing uh, violent extremism is something that the wider UN CT effort takes very seriously. I'm not sure how well they do it, and I'm, indeed I'm not sure how well member states in general do it. I think counter-narrative is much more difficult than narrative, and uh, I think that, I mean, there's a, there's a whole, whole science around this, and I'm really an amateur in this area, but I think the one th thing I would say from, from my own personal experience is that people don't like to feel that they're being targeted by official messaging. It's very rare that official messaging will have the same resonance as uh, as private and subversive um, messaging that we're trying to counteract. And therefore, I think by far the most effective um, counter propaganda is almost of a different sort. And again, it brings us back to soccer. Um, that uh, that World Cup was probably a really effective piece of prop of counter propaganda uh, messaging for two reasons. Uh, one is that the there was this sort of manifest failure of ISIL to do anything about the World Cup, and they themselves afterwards said, "We really looked stupid there. We promised the world, and we delivered absolutely nothing." Um, so that was that in itself was good propaganda, just successful counter-terrorism, I suppose, in a way, or prevention. Um, but the other side of it, of course, is the joy of football and the community side of it and what that does uh, in terms of messaging. And of course, you uh, many people will remember the case of that little boy who wore a, a plastic shopping bag with, with pale blue and white stripes and, and wanted to think he was an Afghan uh, kid who wanted to sort of you yeah. know, worship Lionel Messi. Uh, and then Lionel Messi sent him a, a replica shirt with his name on and that sort of thing I think you know I think governments governments sort of enabling and encouraging that sort of thing but not branding it as government because as soon as you do that you're lost in an age of mis dis and fake information um, you know, there's there are some interesting bits Peter Lanshoff just following that theme a little bit uh, asked a few years ago a Royal Society report claimed that few terrorists were that clever is that really the case? Um, as in clever enough to do what? Sorry. Uh, just clever in general. Uh, oh, I see. Yes, yes, yes. Not no, smart. I, I think, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, and I, I guess that was implicit in what I was saying about, you know, some of the propaganda really being just sort of excitable teenagers um, and, um, and and also the sort of the, the lack of reflection, apparently, on what works. Um, you know, not not realizing that something like the Lee Rigby killing was a really good example of something that, that sent the British um, government into convulsions. Um, but nobody seems to ever to study this on the terrorist side, learn the lessons of it, and then sort of you know strategically direct things in that way. And I, I'm, always, I'm always struck by this with terrorist methodology. Uh, they they obsess over things like um, you know ricin uh, is one of the things that they've they've sort of dabbled at um, uh, inconclusively up to now. Um, you'll see lots and lots of injunctions to do things, and some of those things look like they might be very effective. Um, and one of the things I suppose where they have been successful is you know in sort of recognizing the impact of things like vehicle attacks on crowds. That does have a very high disruptive capability. It's also very cheap. It's also almost unpreventable. Um, and that is a case perhaps where they weren't were smart enough to understand that they'd stumble on something very effective. Um, but interestingly, after the uh, after that uh, dreadful um, uh, high rise fire in West London a few years ago, um, they uh, they ISIL started talking uh, in their propaganda about the need to do more arson attacks. And I was worried at that time because arson is exactly that. It's it's impossible to detect. It's high, it's mass casualty. It's terrifying. Uh, and uh, and you know particularly in certain environments, you know, it's, it could be phenomenally destructive. Um, but uh, but they've never picked it up. They've never actually said, you know, yeah, that was a good idea. We haven't done it yet, but let's do it now. Um, they they seem to forget about things and then get distracted by the next shiny object. Uh, for understandable reasons, given yesterday's uh, tragic incident in Beirut, there are a number of comments about Lebanon, but uh, without asking you to comment on what is clearly a breaking news situation, there's a deeper question uh, from Bob McDowell. How important is the possible economic and financial collapse of the Lebanon and the consequent creation of a failed state 
on on Middle East based terrorism. Any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's very very troubling indeed, and yeah, I won't say anything about the incident because of course we don't know the nature of it, no particular reason yet to think that it was any in any anything other than a you know disastrous accident or you know something of the kind. Um, but uh, yeah, the wider point about Lebanon is important. Uh, of course, Lebanon is umbilically linked to Syria. Um, uh, one of the points that uh, I perhaps didn't make as clearly as I might have done in the presentation is I still see the main ISIL threat as being concentrated in that core region. I think the problems in Syria and Iraq are very far from being solved. And I think we will see uh, the core of ISIL, uh, you know, continue to uh, survive and potentially resurge depending upon uh, other events. Now, to have uh, Lebanon in free fall is obviously extremely unhelpful for that very same reason. Um, uh, you've got, you've got, all sorts of extremist actors in in Lebanon. Generally speaking, the idea of um, enforcement by one set of extremists against another is not a good one. We all know the origins of ISIL were partly in the uh, in the sort of um, take takeover of sort of Shia chauvinism uh, immediately after 2003, um, and 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 so uh, the idea of uh, the idea of the sort of Lebanon becoming uh, you know sort of uh, part of that sort of Syria. Uh, Iraq wider area is not is not a happy one. Not a happy one. That said, you know a lot of good stuff is happening in Lebanon as well, um, and the uh, certainly the, the the UK has always sent very capable um, people to Lebanon, uh, and a lot of work has been done on uh, on strengthening those parts of the Lebanese um, uh, infrastructure that, that that do or can work. Um, so I'm not I don't I'm not I haven't given up on it, but it is worrying. Uh, Phil Williams has made a number of comments, but I think I can string them together into one slightly long question, but might be a short answer. Uh, he points out that Obama said the American people seemed happy to spend billions on counterterrorism to save a few lives, yet did not want them to spend a, a, a penny on gun control. So mm -hmm. he kind of wonders about our sanity. He, he also wonders, uh, in your opinion, should the West scale back the sale of arms to some of these identified hotspots? Is that itself uh, a partial source of the problem? And very finally, uh, uh, with you know China moving up in the world and also being an arms exporter, uh, do you see an increase in China's involvement in trouble spots? Yeah. So first point, uh, I, all I can say is I completely agree. Um, you know, I think Obama's uh, manifestly right, and as he as he so often is. Um, uh, on the second point, um, the impact of gun sales. Yeah. I mean. Uh, this is an interesting one. We, we we look at this. We the arms embargo is part of our. Uh, it's one of the sanctions measures that we uh, that we that we're responsible for, uh, and we uh, get a lot of uh, get a lot of uh, angst from uh, member states. Uh, interestingly enough, um, you know. Uh, you know, some 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 influential states um, who say, you know, that they worry about the availability of uh, arms to terrorists. Um, the situation is very varied around the world. And uh, yeah, a lot, a lot depends on the sort of the environment that's been created in a certain place. So, you know, you've got utter mayhem in Libya and around Libya and with, with sort of a massive arms, no control. Um, Yemen I used to deal with, of course, very closely. And, uh, you know, they, they say there are more Kalashnikovs than people in Yemen. I don't know if it's true, but, you know, it's a, it's, it's pretty, pretty uh, alarming availability of weapons. Now, with some of these, you can't help feeling that the stable door, you know, it cannot cannot now be usefully shut because it's, it's, you know, the, the horse has bolted. Um, but that said, there are many jurisdictions in which uh, availability of uh, weapons to terrorists uh, is still an issue for the terrorists. The supply chain is an issue and, and there's places like that where the arms embargo is most important. Um, and yes, uh, arms sales, uh, it's a problem, uh, definitely if you don't have confidence in who you're supplying to, definitely if you're supplying to people who may sell on, uh, and there is a certain amount of that going on in a number of conflict zones around the world. So I think it's something that needs to be looked at as a policy issue, um, but uh, but whether whether uh, whether that is a strong enough reason to um, to scale back uh, in some strategic areas, I just, I can't say it's, it's really way above my pay grade. Yeah, well, Mark Duff points out there are three firearms for every U.S. citizen. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it, that, the that about, is truly bolted, yes. Yes, and the point about China, sorry. Um, yeah, China, China is becoming a very big player, of course. Um, I think the interesting thing about that is that China has a stronger and stronger interest in stability and uh, security in a wider range of countries. 
And so uh, one of the reasons for optimism in the Afghan peace process is that, is that there's a, there is an increasingly uh, significant Chinese national interest uh, in that, so that whole Belt and Road. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, you know, if you have the Security Council operating more and more in concert on something like that, you have a better chance of success. So I think, I think, I think if anything, it's a, it's, it's a cause for mild optimism. Edwina Morton, who has a long history of covering these things uh, for the Economist Geopolitics, uh, says that keeping things in proportion was a message of some criticism around the, the time of the 9-11 attacks. Um, she heard serious people complaining about folk crying wolf. So surely if you give these folks space, they will use it and their imaginations are limitless. Uh, you know, is that, you know, message of not tolerance, which is a different thing, but that message of uh, keeping things in proportion really the right thing to say? Well, um, I, I think it I think it is. I think it always has to be because in the end, resources are finite and resources have to be allocated. And that includes state resources and, 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 and government uh, government bandwidth. So um, if we heavily resource something that only produces a very small proportion of the threat, by definition, we're under resourcing things which produce a higher proportion of the threat. So uh, I, I think that's the point. I mean, I do take the point and, you know, goodness knows I am a CT professional. It's hardly in my interest to say that we should wrap up the CT industry. That would be absurd. As I said, you know, the CT industry uh, is important. It needs to it needs to function. It needs to function smartly. Uh, it needs to use its resource well. Um, and, uh, and we need to avoid, you know, things like siloing, which occur in some cases where you have inefficiency in sharing information and things like that. You get that sort of thing right. Uh, you may actually achieve more uh, than you do uh, by uh, by just uh, throwing endless resource without thinking about it. Uh, one of the things the UN I think is quite good at, and it's worth just bearing this in mind, is the UN does a lot of capacity building. If that capacity building is well directed, and if it is uh, producing you know significant new capabilities, uh, whether it's forensic capabilities for a police force or whether it's uh, improved border security, and if all of it is 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 linked with the necessary enablers of international cooperation, so not just the encouragement to information sharing, but also enabling information sharing by ensuring that there are certain standards of compliance which enable partners to work with each other rather than being afraid of uh, the uh, you know sort of potential uh, potential um, compliance issues of sharing information. Um, the UN can actually do a lot of good with relatively limited uh, resource. And so, I, I, yes, important, but don't overdo it. Um, I've got about eight comments from David Bissell, many of them interesting. Uh, uh, he points out that uh, ricin was deployed in the Twin Towers, but the air conditioning filters stopped it. Uh, he, he's also got a, a number of uh, really cool observations about uh, North Korea, I didn't realize. Um, obviously, there's the coal transfers at sea, but apparently they export as well animation, uh, and that's a big business for them, uh, exporting that to Korea and Japan to make money. Uh, so lots of interesting stuff here. But um, he asked a question I, I expected an audience of ours to ask, which is really the, the role of uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, how do you feel about cryptocurrencies versus uh, traditional currencies in your space? Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it's a good question and it's something that we look at um, and again, uh, a little bit like other technologies, so whether we're talking about you know financial technologies or others, um, ISIL and Al-Qaeda are not necessarily um, hugely advanced, at least in the practical use that they've made of it. They're certainly aware of it, very aware of it. There are quite a few recorded cases already of uh, cryptocurrency uh, being an element in terror finance in, act in actual cases. Uh, there have been one or two um, arrests. Um, so uh, I don't, I, I, it's not something I dismiss for a minute. We tend to see it as an emerging challenge, an emerging threat. And once again, and this connects a little bit to the previous question, that question of resourcing. Um, Cryptocurrency uh, is obviously part of a wider concern about financial, um, uh, you know, financial controls and financial technologies. And so you get to you get to money laundering and you get to organized crime and all of those other things uh, which are relevant in these in these uh, connections. And the UN, in fact, has just just you know is, is, is has recently passed a resolution on links between organized crime and uh, terrorism. I guess the point I'm making is 
let's look at cryptocurrency on its very specifically on the regulatory challenge that it poses and and then consider the the ct dimension of that in 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 context so that's what we that's what we try to do we're overwhelmed with information about it we talk to all of the fius around the world uh, we also have a we also have a, an observer role with fatf uh, the financial action task force so it's something that we do and you'll see in our reports that there's usually a paragraph on it where we what we end up saying usually is yes these groups are interested in this and yes we need to continue to monitor it yes member states are still concerned about it but as yet it's not a significant component of terror finance uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, with the sum, I think the assets under control of uh, ISIL are sort of believed to be around 100 million, which in financial services terms is uh, one family's wealth. Uh, <laughs> there would be a lot of people in financial services who would say that the objective of anti-money laundering is to reduce tax evasion, which is a different discussion, but to wrap it up as being at all effective against counterterrorism or for counterterrorism. Uh, is really just uh, addressing the government's put on it. Uh, how, how helpful is the work that a lot of us do in anti-money laundering to you? I think it's I think this is, it's helpful in the sense that we're rolling a big stone up a, a hill and we're only a very, very small proportion of the way up the hill, I think. You know, it, this is not something a little, again, coming back to what was being said earlier about, you know, well, if you stop doing this, what happens? Um, these things, this is very necessary. Um, the whole uh, question of the the, the the sort of connection between terror finance, terror finance, money laundering, terror finance, counterterrorism in general, um, it's an interesting nexus. Uh, I don't think that the international community has any high level of agreement on this. I think the level of intelligence coverage of terror finance is surprisingly poor globally. Uh, I'm not. I think there are a number of reasons for that, but, but probably too too not time to go into them. Um, but 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 you know when you think about the kind of lack of precision that exists in estimates of the assets of these various groups, you can tell that there's a problem here in, in, in terms, of, in terms of, of what's really known, uh, in, 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 even in intelligence circles about this question and why it hasn't been a, perhaps a higher uh, uh, priority. Um, one of the things that's worth at least considering this connection is what is the objective? Is the objective to stop these groups from getting money that they can use mm -hmm. to carry out terrorist attacks? Well, that's obviously one objective. But if somebody's going to hire a car and drive it into a crowd or, or buy a knife and stab somebody, um, that's not going to be relevant. Um, or is the objective as a tool of counterterrorism investigations and you end up disrupt, you know, investigating uh, and uh, ultimately disrupting networks because of being able to follow uh, financial trade tracking. So I think these are, you know, I, I can't really give you an answer on this, but the fact is there's a hell of a lot more work to be done on it. Uh, we're running out of time, but I'm going to try if we can squeeze some in here. Um, an interesting bit, it's really just about your, uh, your cyber uh, under your technical. Uh, we've got, for example, um, Mark Duff pointing out with the requirement to work from home and the uptake on buying online, you know, et cetera. What was the threat to internet access? Uh, Dave, who, who spoke earlier, is wondering should strong cryptography be classified as arms, et cetera. But Hugh Purse has got, I think, a really subtle point here. Uh, of great power. If major state players see better returns in cyber terrorism and interference, which appears to be what we're being told by the authorities about the origins of much of the online interference, uh, might they move away from supporting traditional terror groups? Or uh, my supplement to that is, or might they uh, be more acquiescent in allowing cyber terrorism by truly rogue uh, groups? Because that means that they're, they're somebody worse than they are yeah yeah it's a pretty deep question um i, I mean i think I, I suppose the the fundamental point which i made in the presentation is that the the groups that i cover have not yet shown uh, a lot of ambition in this area although isil had a very high cyber capability for for defensive purposes you know they were uh, they had very very developed um uh, it uh, skills and uh, very very you know design designer designer encryption and things like that so they're not fools by any means um, the reality of um, uh, computer-born threat um, you know to uh, to member states to uh, critical national infrastructures and things of that kind um, 
I, I, I think that the reality is that that just is overwhelmingly represented by member states themselves. You know, there's, in other words, member states, uh, member states cyber capability is uh, out, outstrips um, the uh, ISIL or Al Qaeda, you know, by 100 or 1000 to one. I don't know. It's uh, it's 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 not comparable um, now. As soon as you get into the question of what is what kind of mischief is in the interests of member states, um, then you're outside my remit because um, we can only function on the basis that we are working with member states to deal with these two organizations that pose a threat to all member states. There are loads more questions and I wish we had more time and I'm trying to pick sadly one. Uh, let's just note uh, Ian Smales would, would wish we had more time to talk about uh, the annexation of the Wex Bank and what this might do as a spur to ISIL or Al Qaeda attacks. Uh, this question, you know, is there a list of the soft touches you do not realize that they're helping to put out subversion? Uh, and there's an interesting point, very interesting point here about the inclusion and diversity agenda. Uh, might it actually hamper some of the practical measures, uh, the political appetite to tackle some of this? So lots, lots of good stuff out there if we have more time. But uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pick on a question Donald McRae has and probably turn it into the conversation after our second port at dinner. You know, what is the fundamental cause of terrorism and can we influence it? Yeah, it's a good question that. Fundamental cause of ter terrorism, can we influence it? I mean, I think, you know, terrorism, Terrorism is tricky because of the definitional issue, as you know, uh, the United Nations doesn't even have a definition of terrorism, and yet it has a, a whole counter-terrorist industry. Uh, and it manages that in ambiguity reasonably effectively, because, you know, in the end, there's, there's an element with terrorism that you kind of know it when you see it. Um, and, and therefore, you know, maybe you don't have to have a, uh, an absolutely uh, watertight definition, although there are some member states who would disagree with that. Um, I, I think we have on the one hand state-sponsored terrorism, um, states uh, using terrorist tactics against one another, and that is obviously linked to conflict. Um, and 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 so I think you know that is something where um, it's it's a question of making sure that the disincentives are strong enough to uh, prevent people from thinking that's a. A, a, a tool of war of which the cost is acceptably low. You know, the cost needs to be driven up. Um, and that I think is, you know, that's one dynamic that's really very hard to deal with other than by by driving up the cost of, uh, of, of, of international uh, misconduct. Um, when you're talking about groups like ISIL and Al-Qaeda, not state-sponsored groups, but you know, an, an ideology, a sort of nihilistic ideology in many ways, certainly in the case of ISIL, really so sometimes something that feels almost like a death cult uh, in many ways. Um, it, it's it's a little easier because really you're looking at just hard counter-terrorism is the, is, the, is, the is the main point. You're, you're trying to stop these people. You're trying to disrupt them. You're trying to arrest them. Um, you're, you know, if you, yeah, if you can get people to turn and actually uh, actually sort of decide that it was a bad idea all along and uh, and and then sort of either become you know people who help you in one way or another um, or, or, or sort of actually sort of feedback a more helpful message uh, into into their into their groups um, then then that's what you're looking at uh, but in terms of stopping it from stopping the direction of terrorism so as I said earlier I think that the key damage that COVID-19 will do in the terrorism area is that it is just going to make us all poorer and unhappier for a while. And I think that that is going to have a disproportionate impact in some places and on some communities. And I think it probably means that we will see uh, an increase in this sort of, you know, nihilistic uh, or rejectionist type terrorism um, and uh, obviously you know the best way to stop that is 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 you know to uh, Im improved prosperity reduced conflict improved communication reduced marginalization there are all sorts of things all of the whole gamut of uh, PVE and CVE um, it's all relevant in this connection but it's going to be very very hard to make progress on it uh, in present circumstances Edmund, that's great. Sadly, I'm going to have to kind of draw a line on, on, under this uh, conversation due to time. Uh, I've got loads of people coming in uh, thanking you, which is always rewarding to me that I've, I've exceeded time. Uh, you, you brought some really good messages forward on the social bit about uh, resisting xenophobia, 
the the interesting bit for me that cyber is very much a part of your world a warning to us about the economics of covid and what that might do to prosperity and making more of these young use uh, uh, these use disaffected and i thought as well the political point there the counterterrorism is sort of weirdly positive it's one area that the member states can work together and achieve things in uh, reasonable order so that, a precursor to many other things under the sustainable development goals that need to be tackled uh, so <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that's that's a quite a quite a nice positive note it's rare that we get somebody from your world meeting our world it's uh, sort of like you're having a dinner party and then uh, somebody has a nasty accident and the ambulance arrives and the lights are flashing and you knew it was all there but you didn't want to see it and uh, thank you for sharing uh, some of some of that with us today um, I've really got uh, three rounds of thanks to give uh, quickly, and one is clearly to our sponsors. Uh, the fact that you let us explore these things in this community is fantastic, so thank you all. Um, we have a whole bunch of theological bargains on the long finance and ZN websites, ideas to deal with everything, but I must say very few to do with handling terrorism, so thoughts there on what we could do, uh, folks, from all of you. Um, I would like to thank the audience, particularly vibrant today. Really, really good stuff. Thanks for getting the comments in. I'm sorry I couldn't I couldn't uh, feed them all in at the time available. Uh, but what I I think is kind of neat is we're going to have a, a, a slightly different session as well tomorrow, uh, which I would encourage you all to come. Uh, it's going to feature the quite world famous photographer Mark Schlossman, and he's going to be. It's called Going Going Gone. And he's talking about a project he's been working on for nearly two decades on extinction, actually going out and photographing the, ex the extinct species that sit in many of our museums. We'll be talking about the scale of, of that devastation. And again, audience, we're thinking caps on as we try and figure out how we might help him. But Edmund, you're here today, and we've enjoyed it very, very much. And you've taken a lot of time to come at us from Austin, Texas, which I thought was a, an interesting place for you to be located during a cut time of COVID-19. And I'm afraid I can't uh, technically uh, open up things and have the audience applaud. So I have my my little uh, Buddhist, uh, from Korea no less, not North Korea folks, South Korea, uh, my, my little Buddhist uh, knocker here, uh, my karmic clapper, if you will, and I'll applaud on behalf of the audience. Uh, but thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts. We really appreciated it. And thank you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You. Uh, thank you. So goodbye, Edmund. Goodbye, one and all. And we'll see you all again soon.